Hi, and welcome to the Great Christian Books Podcast. This is Daniela and John, and this week we're talking about The Epic of Eden by Sandra L. Richter. Such yep, this was, um, I always tell my friends that this is the only book that I read in seminary that moved me to tears. Yeah. It is an Old Testament survey, so you might be thinking, well, why would that move you to tears? But once we get into it, you'll see that the content of this book is really amazing. Yeah. Fun fact, it's also the only book that John recommended to me from his seminary curriculum. Is that right? Yeah. I guess so. Um, But yeah, so it's an Old Testament survey, but it's also, it's written for lay people. So... Yeah. I mean, it gets technical for sure, but I think it's understandable to kind of the average reader. And so there are parts where you may want to skim. There are parts that you may want to, you know, maybe come back to later if you're having a hard, harder time with the content. But really, again, it's designed to kind of excite uh, the kind of average churchgoer uh, when it comes to the Old Testament. Yeah, a little context on Sandra Richter. So she's not as well known, obviously, as Francis Chan or Timothy Keller, but mm-hmm. we personally think this book is... She should be as well Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this book is well worth your time. Mm-hmm. So she is a professor of biblical studies at Westmont College, which mm-hmm. is a, a nationally ranked Christian liberal arts school in California. Before that, she taught at Asbury Theological Seminary in Wheaton, um, she is a graduate of Valley Forge University, Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, like Timothy Keller. Mm-hmm. And she also has a doctorate, like Timothy Keller. So technically, she's Dr. Sandra Richter. <laughs> yeah, and uh, for, you know, her doctoral work and her academic work, uh, she specializes in the book of Deuteronomy and mm-hmm. Deuteronomistic history. Um, but uh, specifically, when she writes books for lay people, she tries to write books that really brings the Old Testament to life. So Mm. um, it looks like there's a new book released just this year. Like on Amazon, it says February 2020, so like a month ago. Um, But it's called Stewards of Eden, What Scripture Says About the Environment and Why It Matters. I want to read that. We should definitely do an episode on on that book. Uh, And also, according to her bio on, on the Westmont College's website, it says that she's currently working on a book called The Fifth Gospel, a Christian entry into the book of Isaiah. Mm. So it's supposed to be kind of uh, the second book in the series of like this Epic of Eden series, where again, she's trying to make the Old Testament accessible um, to the average churchgoer. Yeah. Um, And that's exactly the heart of her introduction. So in her introduction, um, she talks about the idea of kind of like this closet syndrome, Mm -hmm. right? So the idea that, you know, in our houses, we all have this closet that's like really messy where you just kind of dump all of your stuff and you can't see the bottom or the back. Um, And I know we've definitely had a closet like that in the past. But yeah, the idea that you have this space where everything's a mess and it's jumbled together. And she kind of argues that for many Christians, that's kind of our understanding of the Old Testament. So we have a a bunch of facts and dates and Bible stories, but we don't really know how they flow or how they all come together. Right. So uh, this is actually in her word. She says, It has been my experience that the average Christian's knowledge of the Old Testament is much the same. Dozens of stories, characters, dates, and place names, years of diligent acquisition, yet these acquisitions all lie in a jumble on the metaphorical floor. 
A great deal of information is in there, but none of it goes together. Rather, just like the dysfunctional closet, the dates, names, and narratives lie in an inaccessible heap. Thus, the information is too difficult or too confusing. So the typical student of the Old Testament closes the door and says, maybe next summer I'll sort that out. And um, then she basically introduces the idea of covenants as the organizing principle for Mm -hmm. kind of this dysfunctional Old Testament closet. And I remember when I was reading this book, I was like, yep, that definitely describes my experience with the Mm -hmm. Old Testament. And I had a lot of hope uh, going into this book that I was like, okay, finally, I'll have a chance to actually sort out kind of the narrative throughout the Old Testament. Yeah. And another thing that she mentions is that for many Christians, there's kind of like this, uh, like, almost like disengagement with the Old Testament. It's like, mm-hmm. I don't, like, that's not, I don't know. I know I even sometimes in my Bible studies, I definitely emphasize the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of the sense of like, oh, is the Old Testament really that important? That's like the old stuff. Jesus comes in the New Testament and that's the important stuff. Mm-hmm. But she kind of says, if you don't understand the Old Testament, mm-hmm. you're not fully getting the New Testament. Yeah, actually, uh, this book was assigned reading for me for my New Testament survey Ooh, class. Interesting. My New Testament professor said that you cannot understand the New Testament without understanding mm. the Old Testament. So he assigned this book as kind of like a brief survey of the Old Testament. Yeah, perfect. So I think with that, we should probably jump right into our first key idea, which is the idea of redemption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because another point that uh, Sandra Richter makes is that uh, not only is the Old Testament like a dysfunctional closet, it's also very hard to cross the kind of cultural barriers oh, yes. to get there. So when you think about a term like redemption, mm-hmm. she uses she describes it using this term biblish or mm-hmm. biblish, which is basically like biblical gibberish. Like we all know what redemption kind of means. We throw it around in church, but like when you actually try to sit down and think about what it means, it's not very clear at all because there's kind of a cultural barrier uh, that separates us from understanding the culture of the time, understanding the language of the time, how something like redemption would have been understood. Yeah. Um, Yeah, this is super important. And and she kind of goes into this by talking about three key terms, the idea of uh, Jewish culture being patrilineal, Mm -hmm. patriarchal, Mm -hmm. and patrilocal. Very nice. Yeah. Being able to battle this up. (laughs) I get nervous for this podcast every time I need to say those three. Yeah, but yeah. So... Anyway, she kind of provides a little bit of context for us. And, and, and I love this because, I mean, we're in an intercultural marriage and we go to a very diverse church. Mm-hmm. And I think the idea of uh, just understanding things outside of your culture is something that we wrestle with a lot, but that has not always been the case. And just like there is cultural barriers between us as humans now, you can kind of imagine how much of a barrier there can be when we think back to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea is that everything that we're reading happened in a historical context and time and place. And if we can understand these terms, we can have a much richer and deeper understanding of the scripture. Mm-hmm. So uh, patriarchal kind of refers to the idea that, you know, ancient Israel was organized around the patriarch. So we think in terms of our boss, we think in terms of like the president or our governor. Um, But in Israel, Mm -hmm. they thought in terms of the patriarch or the head of the household, basically. Mm -hmm. And and this wasn't just like the dad. It was uh, someone like Abraham who was Mm -hmm. in charge of 
even two, three, or even four generations in one family. It all came down to the leadership of one person like Abraham who was in charge of defending Lot and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and that patriarch would be responsible for all the livelihood of the family. Mm -hmm. The patriarch would be responsible for the family's inheritance, the family's uh, possessions, the family's land. All of that came through uh, the patriarch. Yeah, or even if you think of scripture where it says like, you know, like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, exactly. there's an idea that, mm -hmm. you know, God is seeing that family unit mm -hmm. through that like lens, right? right? You're not just your own individual person. Right, and that brings up also the idea of patrilineal, the idea that uh, now the, the power or the authority or the leadership of the patriarch came down uh, linearly uh, through the generations, through the eldest sons. And this also kind of um, connotes the idea that uh, basically the whole family's livelihood came through generation generationally down that mm -hmm. line. And the third idea of patriarchal, this is a, a pretty straightforward one, that um, the entire family was centered spatially around uh, the patriarch. Yeah. And this was a really cool concept for me because mm -hmm. it kind of describes the idea of the Betab, is that mm -hmm. how you would say it? Yeah, Betab. Mm -hmm. Betab, and it's the idea of like the family unit, mm -hmm. right? So nowadays we kind of live with our nuclear family. Maybe you have like a grandparent or something, but generally speaking, it's like every family is living in their own individual house. Like five people in yeah. the house. Yeah. But back in the day, uh, it was more like a family compound. So mm -hmm. there would be this kind of like. Uh, I wish you could show you the picture, but we can't. So. There's a floor plan in the book. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there is just like this uh, this household that was maybe two stories high, and it mm -hmm. kind of shows you how it was organized. And even that gave me so much insight into like the story of Jesus's birth. So on the first mm. floor, there's like animals, and there's a hearth, and mm. then um, the second floor is where the family like sleeps, and then there's a third floor, which usually is like open. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's an upper room. So that's kind of like the layout of the house, but everybody is living in close quarters. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that, uh, it, it was kind of like there was this land and all of the little nuclear families lived in that same lot together. Mm -hmm. So if they were in a city, it would be kind of like townhouses. It might be attached to each other. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, so one of the really cool things about this Mm -hmm. That John and I were talking about earlier is just the idea that there's this there's this verse. Can you write me the verse? Yeah, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, "Do not worry, I'm going ahead to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house there are many rooms." Now, Father's house is Bet Ab. Bet Ab in Hebrew means the house of the Father. Yeah. So like Ab is like Abba, you know. Mm -hmm. So that idea. So. Yeah, what I love about that is just that, like, I think I interpret that through my Western lens. And I often think, like, you know, when I get to heaven, God's going to... I think I've even heard sermons on this, <laughs> probably because I'm from Texas. Or what is that audio adrenaline song? In my father's know. house, there's lots and lots of room and oh, I have heard that where song. we can play football or something. Like Actually... It's not theologically wrong, as we're about sure, to learn. Sure, yeah. But I think in my mind, it's like, in my father's, like, 
city. Yeah, yeah, there's like my own individual dwelling and my own individual mansion because that's kind of what we were used to here in the West. But what makes this idea so special is that actually it's way more intimate and way closer than that. Actually, we're not going to have our own monk mansion in heaven, but we're going to be part of this family compound. We're going to be living in very close quarters with God. Mm-hmm. So that really touched me. Yeah, heart. because if you look at the floor plan of the Bet Ab, right, there, there are four rooms for the four families living together with the father or the patriarch of the household, right? So again, the idea when, you know, for instance, we just read The Prodigal God by mm-hmm. Tim Keller last episode. And in the parable of the prodigal son, right, the, the prodigal son runs back to the father's house mm-hmm. and the father received that son back into the house. Mm-hmm. That's just not, not now in, in the West, we just think, okay, that's like a place to live, a shelter. Mm-hmm. But in ancient Israel's culture, it was the center of like the livelihood of the society was that everything was structured around the patriarch. Everything was located around the patriarch. When you were born, you were born into the family house. That's where you grew up. That's like, uh, like Westerners, we like to pride ourselves in our jobs and our education. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to describe, but just imagine like, this is like the heartbeat of Israelite society. Mm-hmm. And so when Jesus says in my father's house, there are many rooms, he's inviting in us into the heartbeat of God, the very presence of God. That's, that's really, and that's really helped me understand mm-hmm. the narrative throughout yeah. scripture. Yeah. I was thinking similar thoughts, just the idea that we start in Genesis, right? And we know, and we see that God is in the garden with Adam and Eve. Um, and, and she calls this book the Epic of Eden, right? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of that. But then we get all the way to the book of Revelation. Obviously, there's separation. Sin separates us from God. Um, and it's unclear how we're going to be restored to that place of like dwelling and intimacy and closeness with God. But actually... Um, he does it. Obviously, we know the story, right? Mm-hmm. Through Jesus. And because of that, we know that in Revelation, it says like the dwelling place of God is with men. Right. And just the idea that, you know, Jesus is like the sun in the new Jerusalem. And, mm-hmm. and there's just kind of that same restoration of that mm-hmm. closeness and being together and fully mm-hmm. restored with God again. Now, what's really interesting about thinking about the patriarchal, patrilocal, and patrilineal. Yeah. Uh, kind of characteristics of ancient Israel is that it begins to unravel what it really means to be redeemed. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, when we think about redemption, we just think it's the forgiveness of sins, but that's not actually what it meant back then in the secular and legal sense. Even today, when we think about redemption, like I'm going to redeem a Groupon or I'm going to redeem, you know, this discount, what it means is to actually like gain possession of or purchase, right? So when you think about that, it's like, well, why was redemption such a big idea uh, in the Old Testament? But once you understand this idea of the patriarch and how everything was passed down linearly uh, through the elder sons, it begins to make sense of the idea of redemption. Yeah, and one of the stories that really showcases this term beautifully is obviously the story of Ruth. Mm -hmm. So I love this story on any given day, but I especially love it through the lens of redemption. So we know that there's Naomi. She's been, uh, she has some like bad circumstances. She, she went with her husband, Elimelech to Mm -hmm. Moab and two, and she had two sons, but during her time there, she lost her husband, who was like the patriarch of the family. Right. So she lost her possessions. She lost the bet ab. Well, actually, it would go to her sons, right? Yeah. So thankfully, like when her husband dies, that uh, inheritance, the possession, the land, all of that would be passed down to the sons. Yeah, but then 
by some tragic turn of events, we also lose the sons. So when we encounter her in that first chapter, it's mm-hmm. just her and her two daughters in law. Right. <laughs> yeah, daughters in law or daughter in laws. Yeah, I, I don't know what's confused. the plural. Uh, but what that means for her is that、uh, because Israel is organized patriarchally, patrilinearly, patrilocally, she's lost everything in that society, and her two daughters have lost everything in that society as well. That's why God has such a concern throughout the Old Testament for the widow and the orphan, because they literally、mm. had no sort of structural help in that society. Wow, that's such. I love that. I'm gonna think more about that later because it's so good. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's awesome. I I love this. I'm telling you, like、too. this kind of stuff, like getting a sense of the cultural context, it just completely opens your mind to understanding scripture in a new way. Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely have to think about what you just said, and I think moving forward, I will. When I every time I read <laughs> sure, the widow sure, and orphan,、sure. I'm gonna think about this.、Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's awesome. I I love that in Ruth one、uh, verse eleven.、Mm-hmm. She she kind of highlights this by saying to them, you know, when they're kind of discussing if they're going to go or they're going to stay. She says, even if I somehow got a husband now and I were able to conceive two children, and,、mm-hmm. and like you would have to wait twenty years for that to like、mm-hmm. work out, right? So it kind of gives us a little like, glimpse into the culture. What she's saying is like, I have nothing to offer you, even if、mm-hmm. I were to a get a husband, b magically conceive children, and they were sons, like. What would he do? Just wait around for them to grow up? So there's no hope for the yeah, two daughters. Yeah, it's a pretty dire situation. But obviously, the the beautiful part of the story is that one of the two、uh, women, Ruth, just kind of decides to cleave herself to Naomi, and she she kind of forsakes her own safety and her、mm-hmm. own. Normally, she would return to her father's house, right?、Mm-hmm. But she doesn't. She instead goes with Naomi, and they go back home.、Mm-hmm. Now, the where the concept of redemption comes into play here. Is that Ruth meets Boaz, and、uh, you and I were getting into a debate about、yeah. whether they fell in love. Yeah, that is not in the Bible, so I can't stand by that statement. Okay, I still don't understand. Okay, okay. Anyway, to leave that <laughs> argument aside, they somehow they're connected. They are connected because Ruth is gleaning, and and Ruth finds favor in Boaz's、yeah. eyes, which to me means that Boaz fell in love. No, which is why he's willing to marry her, but. Regardless of how it went down,、uh, Ruth、uh, finds favor in Boaz's eyes, and then Ruth asks Boaz、uh, to marry her. Now,、yeah. this does not just mean, "Oh, will you marry me?" Like、mm-hmm. lovey-dovey romance. What this means is, he she asks Boaz to redeem her into the family. Now, what does that mean?、Uh, back in ancient Israel, when you were widowed,、uh, you were actually、uh, basically married off. To another brother mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of of your husband, so that you could basically all of this is to bring you back into the family、mm-hmm. line, to bring you back into the bet ab, to bring you、mm. back into your inheritance. And so when she asks Boaz to marry her, she's saying,、uh, "Will you bring me into the family once again?"、Mm. And、uh, he says yes. And so when he,、uh, you know, basically they have this ritual with with、uh, you know Boaz's elder brother and all the stuff. But in short, what happens is when Boaz offers to marry Ruth,、yeah. he redeems her.、Uh, the term is that he is a kinsman redeemer,、mm-hmm. kinsman redeemer, which means that he not only marries her, but he brings her into a family so that her and Naomi now can have property, now can have possessions, now can be a, once again a 
you know, part of that heartbeat of the Israelite society. And in all of that, that is a word picture of how God redeems his people. When God redeems us, what he's doing is that just like Boaz did, he's, he's bringing us into the family of God. He's bringing us into the inheritance and the promises of God. That's what actually the word redemption means. It's just buy someone into the family so that they can be whole and uh, united once again. Yeah, and, and we know that this is a very costly thing that Boaz yes. is doing. Um, he's essentially buying back the patrimony of, of Naomi's deceased husband or Ruth's deceased husband and also Naomi's deceased husband having a child in the name of that initial patriarch, Elimelech's father, mm-hmm. and essentially kind of putting his own his own property and his own like rights mm-hmm. a little bit, you know, in danger. So mm-hmm. he's doing something that's very like costly and significant. And I think that's important because what Jesus does for us is also so costly and it's not something that comes easily. And uh, another story that uh, kind of shows this idea of redemption is that I, this is a story of Gomer and Hosea. Yeah, this one is crazy. I mean, I don't know which story is crazier, but uh, yeah. for those of you that uh, you know may or may not be familiar with Hosea, you know, he's a prophet and the Lord tells him to buy or to redeem a prostitute named Gomer and Mary. Again, the picture in what I, what's just occurring to me now too is that the picture of redemption in both of those cases is marriage. That not only is God like purchasing us, but he's actually mm. marrying the bride, mm-hmm. which is Christ, marrying his people, Israel. Mm-hmm. And he's bringing them into the family in that way. So we see Hosea goes out into the streets and purchases this prostitute and thus redeems this prostitute into the family lineage of Hosea. Yeah, I mean, that's crazy for for this, you know, religious prophet to go out and buy a prostitute. Uh, they get married, they have three kids, you know, mm-hmm. this is like amazing for Gomer. Mm-hmm. But then she actually goes and become a, and she starts selling herself again. So not only does uh, Hosea have to redeem her once, he actually redeems her twice. Because the Lord commands him to go and uh, purchase her again to show what the Lord does for Israel whenever Israel is unfaithful. Yeah, which is crazy. There's like a literal price given in scripture of 15 shekels of silver. I, I just... That Hosea paid for that, Gomer. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's just crazy. Like there's like an actual price and oh, it, it's amazing that God, you know, is so faithful to us, even though we're so unfaithful to him, which kind of brings us into the idea of covenants yes. as well. Yes, because the way that we can understand redemption is, or the way that God offers us redemption is through covenants. Uh, And actually, this is what Sandra Richter argues is the organizing principle of the Old Testament. So in order to understand the Old Testament, you have to understand it basically as a series of covenants that God makes with his people so that he will one day redeem the people of Israel, right? And uh, so uh, the, you know, basically the main headings in the books, and, and we, we can't get into all of this yeah, today, so obviously, but it's the Adamic covenant, it's the Noahic covenant, and then it's the Abrahamic, Abrahamic covenant, Mosaic, Mosaic covenant, and, and the Davidic, Davidic covenant. <laughs> yeah. uh, and this is kind of the organizing principle of the Old Testament 
Um, but I think uh, for me and you, I mean, one of our favorite parts of this book was her discussion of covenants, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and again, I think it gives us you it gives you a really good outline of the Bible, even if you think of the fact that the New Testament and the Old Testament are actually the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right. And you think of those five covenants we just mentioned, and then the New Covenant that we're heading into. It kind of gives you an outline for the Bible. So even if you just got that out of this book, it would be huge, right? Right. So okay, so a covenant. What is the technical definition of a covenant? Is it just to make a contract? Yeah. Uh, the, the word that's, I mean, there's multiple words in the Hebrew, but the word that's used in the Hebrew is berit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and berit literally means cut a covenant, which mm. will be significant in a little bit. Yes, uh, I like that. The teaser right there. Um, but yeah, it was just basically a contract between two parties. And uh, Sandra Richter describes that there's basically two different kinds of covenants. Um, the first is uh, a covenant of parity, mm-hmm. uh, which is just between two equals. Uh, but then there's also a very interesting kind of covenant um, in uh, ancient Israel and ancient Assyria and the, among the ancient Hittites. Uh, and this is called the suzerain vassal covenant or the suzerain uh, vassal treaty. Yeah, so in the parity treaty, there's usually two like different countries, and it's kind of an alliance, usually a military alliance. Uh, so, for example, when Joshua gets a land, I think it's with the Gibeonites. Mm-hmm. Um, they like right. trick him into like signing a covenant with him because they yeah. pretend like they've come from really far away, but really they're like a neighbor. Mm-hmm. And then you know he's now made this agreement with them. So that would be like kind of like an agreement between equals. But the most important one for us is the is the the covenant between a. a a lower vassal, mm-hmm. and then a lord, right? Um, and so the example that we're talking about today, well, there's two actually. So why mm-hmm. don't you talk more about the mosaic? Yeah, because basically the idea with the suzerain and vassal covenant is that, uh, you know, the vassal, the weaker king or the weaker person would basically come to the suzerain and say like, hey, please don't destroy me. Like, we're weak. We want to be your subjects, right? Mm-hmm. So will you protect us and will you, you know, not destroy us? Yeah. And the suzerain would say, okay, fine, I guess so. Um, but you need to follow these stipulations. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I will kill you <laughs> and I will destroy your people. Um, and, uh, you know, basically they were, you know, for instance, the vassal had to give some sort of tribute, tribute yeah. kind of obey, call the, the suzerain like God and like, you yeah. know, basically... You know, there are all these kind of, um, these kind of stipulations. Uh, one thing, though, that, these, that would happen with these covenants is that the suzerain would bring out, let's say, an animal, mm. which is why this is called cut a covenant, mm-hmm. and uh, the, the suzerain would slaughter a lamb. For instance, if you look at an ancient Assyrian covenant, they would uh, kill this lamb and... <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know, basically the, the, the Susian king would say, this head is not the head of a spring lamb. It is the head of Matilu. It is the head of his sons, his magnates, and the people. If Matilu should sin against this treaty, so may, just as the head of this spring lamb is cut off, uh, this will basically happen to Matilu, who is the vassal. Yeah. So when they cut the, the animal... It's a threat that signifies that if you break this treaty, then the same thing will happen to you. 
Yeah. So this is why they were called, essentially, when you use the language of a covenant, it would be the idea of cutting a covenant because you would be cutting these animals in half and walking through them to kind of like sign or like say that your 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 covenant was official. Mm-hmm. And then it was always with the idea like looming over you that if you were to break the covenant, what happened to those animals would essentially happen to you. Right. Now, um, Sandra Richter does some analysis. And I mean, this is something that is well known among Old Testament scholars. Mm-hmm. But it's actually important to know this stuff to understand the Old Testament. Um so if you look at the structure of these uh, ancient Near Eastern covenants, the Berits, um, they always had a certain pattern. Mm-hmm. And this is very interesting stuff for, for those of you that are history nerds out there. It always starts with some sort of preamble uh, that talks about how mighty the Lord is, the, the, you know, the suzerain Lord or King is. And we'll talk about some historical pre- prologue where the the suzerain lord would talk about you know i protected you i defeated all your enemies i crushed them and then it would go into some sort of like stipulation and commandments uh and then uh it would basically go into like the next major portion was a series of cursing curses and blessings Mm -hmm. based on if you obey these stipulations then you will be blessed in these ways and if you uh, do not obey you'll be cursed in these ways now i actually brought in a uh, primary source document for today fancy um i did a little bit of research myself and i looked up uh this uh thing that I found is uh, a Hittite treaty from back then. And uh, I just want to actually read you some of this language and and see if those of you that are listening can kind of pick up parallels between this and what we read in the Bible, right? So uh, for instance, it says, if you Prince Shatiwaza and you Hurrians observe this treaty and oath, these gods will protect you and the land of Mitanni shall return to its former state. And it shall prosper and expand. And you, Shatiwaza, you sons and grandsons by the daughter of the great king, shall accept you for kingship for eternity. Prolong the life of your throne, prolong the life of the land of Mitanni. But if you, Prince Shatiwaza, and you, Hurrians, do not observe the words of this treaty, uh, the gods, the lords of the oath, shall destroy you and you, Hurrians, together with your land, your wives, and your possessions. They will draw you out like malt from its husk. And these gods shall allot you poverty and destitution. Your name and your progeny by another wife shall be eradicated from the earth. The ground shall be as ice so that you will slip. The ground of your land shall be as a marsh so that you will certainly sink and be unable to cross. You, Shatiwaza, and the Hurrians shall be the enemies of a thousand gods they shall defeat you. So there was no mincing words. Yeah, like sometimes. if you obeyed the covenant, then the king was basically assuring you that you'll be blessed and that you will prosper in your land. But if you disobeyed the covenant, then you'll be cursed, you'll be destroyed, you won't, you won't be able to eat, you know, the ground will be turned into ice and you will slip. Like all these curses were pronounced um, to you. Yeah, and hopefully as you're listening, you can hear a lot of parallels between Exodus and Deuteronomy, right? Yes. That same kind of idea, like the cursings mm-hmm. and blessings. If you do what I say, then you will prosper. But if you don't, you know, I, there's a lot of similarities. And that is because 
God is using this secular idea of a covenant that was very common. The primary source that John found is one of like many out there. Thousands um, and thousands of covenants. Yeah. And they all kind of follow the same pattern. I only listed, you know, the, the basic structure. Yeah. But it, if you do the research, I mean, you'll see that it's just over and over they follow the similar pattern. Yeah. Which, I mean, what blows my mind about that is that God would condescend to our own human understanding to kind of make mm -hmm. himself understood. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess this is not necessarily our understanding now, but the understanding of the people in the Bible mm -hmm. uh, of ancient Israelites, that he would condescend to that culture and kind of reveal himself to them in a way that they could understand. Right. Now, all of this talk about covenants, though, and the blessings and curses, I think to me that like really begs the question of, wait a second, mm. but we know mm -hmm. that the Israelites are going to continuously break these covenants, yeah. right? Uh, you know, Danielle and I, we just were uh, listening to the audio Bible in our Bible reading plan. Yeah. And it was, it was it's so ridiculous. It's about how Moses uh, came down from Mount Sinai with the commandments that he had just received and what does he see? He sees the Israelites breaking the first commandment right away. <laughs> yeah. And they set up this golden calf and they're work and Aaron's the leader of I the know. people and they're standing with this golden calf. So Moses goes berserk and he like grinds up the calf and like feeds it to the people or makes <laughs> them drink of it, right? Yeah, but yeah. But that's like the story of the Old Testament. Yeah. Is that true. the people over and over and over break the commandments of God. So the question is this, well then how will God redeem the people of Israel? How will God bring them back into the fold, bring them into a place where they, he is uh, their God and they are his people and that they're so that the dwelling place of God will be with man, like you said earlier, right? And that is the big question mark that, you know, when you read the Old Testament, you see like, what is going to happen? How is God going to redeem his people? Hmm. That's so good. So hopefully as you're listening, you're kind of thinking like, wait, what, what is the, the, who's going to bear this punishment? And maybe right. I'm already giving And if you're away. a Christian, then you know, <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is always yeah. the answer to, to every teach, question. <laughs> I used to teach um, a Bible class to international students oh, and it was yeah. like my intro to Bible <laughs> yeah. class. And I would always kind of build up to these moments and then I would tell them the answer is always Jesus. And yeah. like, this is a perfect example. Right. And the answer is Jesus. But yeah, as you're thinking about this, it's the idea that we know, based on any biblical knowledge we have, that Israelites are going to be unfaithful to God again and again, and that there's going to have to be a cost or a punishment. And the person who's going to bear that, obviously, is going to be Jesus. Right. So just like Hosea went after Gomer, uh, even after she was unfaithful, even after she uh, sold herself into prostitute again, he's willing to pay the cost himself to buy her back and to marry her, right? And to allure her, right? In mm -hmm. the same way, God is willing to pay the price for us. Well, how does he pay the price? Through the cross. Now, what's amazing is that this was for, now we know it as Christians, but the cost that God would pay through Jesus Christ was already foretold in a covenant that God made with Abram, this is absolutely mind-blowing to me. Yeah, I love, this is my favorite covenant, I think. Well, and David. Yeah, uh, I mean, I will build you a house. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that, that will preach. That's <laughs> we great. actually won't even, we don't have time to talk about Davidic covenant. Yeah, we're but... just going to talk about this one, but it's probably my favorite. 
Maybe. So anyway, in Genesis 15, we come upon Abram and he received a promise in Genesis 12 that he's going to be the father of many nations and that God's going to bless him. But then we're a few chapters later in scripture and Abram is kind of getting discouraged. He's getting pretty old and he still doesn't have a son. So I love, um, I love what Abram says to God. Um, he says, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Mm. Um, And I just love that, that Abram is just kind of like, God, you know, you made a promise to me and I don't see it. What are you going to give me? And then God, this is the part where he's like, I'm going to speak to you in a way that you can understand. Mm -hmm. And we Mm -hmm. kind of start to see some familiar language here. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And essentially what happens is that, you know, God speaks to him um, and then he tells Abram, bring me, you know, he kind of says, bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, three years old, and a ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram brings them, and then he cuts them in half, and he puts them there. Um, And as the sun is going down, there's like this deep sleep that comes over Abram, which already kind of speaks of like something big happening. The last time Mm -hmm. that happened in scripture was with Adam, Mm -hmm, when Eve mm -hmm. was kind of given to him. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's this, this, dreadful and great darkness which also speaks of like i I can never say this word theophany yes Mm -hmm. thank you it's the appearance of god like in the burning bush for example whenever god appears uh, to a man it's a theophany right yeah and Mm -hmm. there's usually a dreadful and great darkness Mm -hmm. associated Mm -hmm. with that image Mm -hmm. so we know something big is going to happen so uh the lord kind of restates to abraham the promise and he says um you know, know, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land, and then I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Um, and then he continues, and, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete, which is a whole different story. Then the sun goes down, and it's dark, and a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Um, and this is significant because we, as we talked about earlier, Something key is happening here with this with this smoking fire pot and flaming torch passing between the pieces. Right, because again, what's happening is that God is cutting a covenant. He's uh, making the berit, right? So he's cutting a co- apart the animals. And remember, with the suzerain vassal treaty, the suzerain lord would bring out this animal, right? And cut the animal in half and say, this is what's going to happen to you if you disobey. And then the vassal walks through the split apart animals to say that I'm walking through these split apart animals as a symbol that if I disobey you, I'm going to be cut to pieces. Yeah. The key thing here is that it's not Abram that walks through these pieces. It's actually God in the smoking pot and in the flaming torch. He himself is coming and saying like i'm going to ensure that this happens you know because we know we know what's going to happen with abram and israelites are not going to be able to keep this covenant but god is the one that is saying i will bear the punishment of not fulfilling the covenant when you fail and you are unfaithful i will bear the cost i will bear the punishment and of course we know with the new covenant, what, you know, uh, prophets longed to see that the, the surprising, the most surprising plot twist in all of human history, that God came 
as a human being, Jesus Christ, fully son, fully man, as the mediator, as the sacrificial lamb, so that Jesus could be Jesus could live the perfect life that we should have lived. He died the death of a sinner, even though he was sinless, and that he was the lamb that took away the sins of the world. Even the idea, I mean, I'm just realizing now, like how amazing the redemptive story of God is that in the ancient Near East, there was this mm-hmm. ritual that they would cut apart animals and make a covenant and walk mm-hmm. through them. They didn't even have a concept of like sacrificial lambs until, because in, in Abram's time, Israel was not a nation. It was when mm-hmm. Israel became a nation that God began to speak to them about sacrificing lambs and goats for the sacrifice of sins for the nation. That was a picture of the kind of sacrifice that Jesus would make for us, that he would be the Passover lamb that would, uh, that whose blood would be poured out so that we could be forgiven, that we could be redeemed, and that we could be brought into the family of God forever and ever. That is just so mind-blowing that from the time of Abram, God was communicating his plan of redemption in a way that they would understand who Jesus would be when he came and died for us. Yeah, and I just, I love that even in Genesis 16, we already see the first echoes of the gospel. Right. That there is, you know, there is this breaking of a promise. There is a cost that has to be paid and that ultimately the person whose flesh is going to be torn for us is going to be Jesus. So this is just such, such a blessing. And, you know, uh, Sandra Richter, and, you know, she will continue to weave this theme uh, throughout, again, Moses, David, uh, and so on and so forth with all of the covenants throughout the book. And, you know, we highly recommend that you go out and purchase this book uh, and, and you read through all of the historical context that's there. But in the last chapter, you know, she closes off this book by talking about the new covenant, right? And, you know, without getting into too much detail, I thought it was, you know, super helpful to think about uh, the gospel message as a message of redemption into the family and the kingdom mm-hmm. of God, right? Mm-hmm. Like, again, if you think about the concept of the suzerain Lord, right? And when God was giving Moses the commandments in Exodus and Deuteronomy, he was basically saying, I will be your suzerain Lord and you will be my people, right? Well, that mm-hmm. theme continues throughout the New Testament, right? Why? Because as soon as Jesus comes, what does he do? He proclaims the kingdom of God. He proclaims Mm. that he is going to be our Lord and King, right? So when we look at the New Testament, we just are tempted to think, oh yeah, my sins are forgiven and that's it. But actually Jesus is continuing the story of the Old Testament that God was supposed to be the King of Israel, but Israel was unfaithful. So when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, well, the kingdom of God is here. Hmm. That's so good. And I, I think it just comes full circle. We start with Eden with this kind of broken relationship, This these children that are kind of like taken away from, from Eden, from the house of God. And then we see in the whole arc of the mm-hmm. Bible, this mm-hmm. restoration coming, which Jesus ultimately does. Um, and he, he brings us fully back to him so that we have access to that full restoration into the betab. Mm. Um, yeah. 
So it's, yeah, it's awesome. So we we love this book. We're, we always recommend it to people who kind of want to learn more about the Old Testament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we hope that you, the listeners, were blessed by this. Um, and again, we recommend that you buy it. What we talked about is maybe 30% of the book. <laughs> Not even. Not yeah. even. Yeah, there's yeah. like a lot more that you can go into and study this on your own time. But yeah, we love this and we highly recommend it. And we're it. definitely going to buy the um, Stewards of Eden book. Yes. Actually, I didn't realize this is Intervarsity Press. That is the book I wanted to read. Oh, it is? Yeah. Oh, so that was Sandra Richter. Yeah, but oh, I didn't that's know. Crazy. I, time. I didn't make the connection. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. So oh, we, yeah. It's going to be great. We're fans. She people. also um, wrote a book uh, about Jonah. Oh, so really? I really want to read the one about Isaiah that hopefully she will finish soon. And then there, there's another one about Jonah. I mean... Yeah, I think it's like a true like gift to be able to take these academic like Old Testament historical things and make them accessible to everyone. Yes. So I really yes. value her for that. Yes, yes. Um, what do you think are some uh, practical applications from a very kind of academic kind of survey of the Old Testament? Well, what do you think? Uh, I would say read your Bible. <laughs> Well, I'll study, right? That's I mean, always relevant. One thing is people really avoid the Old Testament. I think practically yeah. just just understanding, like she said, like trying to put ourselves uh, in the shoes of the ancient Israelites, trying to understand what they were thinking, what they were feeling, you know, how they were relating to God. I'm um, also just understanding that the Old Testament is the story of our redemption. Mm-hmm. It's not just about Israel and back then. It's the story of how God has redeemed us, right? Yeah. Um, that's a good point. Yeah. yeah study. I, would, <laughs> I would highly encourage people to like, uh, to read some of the stories you talked about today with that lens. Mm-hmm. So kind yeah. of going back to read the story of Ruth or reading the story of Hosea. I think when you read those things. The prodigal son. Yeah. That's all just, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's kind of like a deeper understanding there. I know I'm personally, as I'm reading my Bible, I'm going to have a special, uh, eye out. That sounds weird, but mm-hmm. I'm going to have, I'm going to keep uh, an eye out. An eye out. <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have a special eye. <laughs> I know. Now I'm thinking of like creatures with eyes all yeah, over yeah. in the Bible. But no, I'm gonna keep an eye out for references yeah. to uh, mm-hmm. widows and orphans. Mm. Um, I think with this new context, I can kind mm. of appreciate God's heart just a little bit more. So yeah, I mean, those are the takeaways that I can think of. Is there anything else? Yeah, I think for me, I think the concept of bet ab is is uh, that that's by the way. You know, I mentioned that when I was reading this for seminary, that's the, that's, this is the only book that I was crying through. That's the part that touched my heart the most Mm -hmm. is that God is not just saving us from sin, but he wants us to be in his family. Reminds me of J.I. Packer, where he said the, Mm -hmm. the highest exaltation of the gospel Mm -hmm. is adoption. It's not justification, but it's that we are made children Mm -hmm. of God. And I want to think about my relationship with God as being a part of his family and being pro- you know, brought into his home. And I also want, like, this is a practical application for me, is when I, make, when I make an invitation to the gospel, it's an invitation to bring people into the Father's house, mm. right? It's not just like, I mean, forgiveness of sins, yes, right? Justific- that is what redemption is. We're being mm-hmm. bought when we were dead in our transgressions. We're bought by a price. But but it's it's not just like, you know, you know, pray the sinner's prayer, you know, check that box off. Mm-hmm. It's an invitation to experience intimacy uh, in the Father's house. So, um, you know, this definitely leaves me kind of mulling on a lot. Um, and I hope that for all of you, you know, it had that same effect. 
Yeah. So we hope you're encouraged. We hope you read some of these stories or even the covenants that we did not talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, thank you so much for your time. And hopefully we will see you again next week. What are we going to do next week? Oh, the uh, Through the Gates of Splendor by Elizabeth Elliot. Yeah, that's going to be epic. We we both read just the first page and it's already like goosebumps. Oh, man. (laughs) So that's a good one coming up. Yeah. So see you next week, hopefully. Hopefully.